UK Cambridge Centre podcast. In this Integrated Cancer Medicine Research in Focus series, I talk to various ICM members about their research and how it is supported by the vision of the Mark Foundation Institute for Integrated Cancer Medicine. MFICM research uses cutting-edge analytics to maximise the use of diverse high-volume datasets and by capturing cancer heterogeneity in time and space in patients receiving active treatment. Integrated Cancer Medicine aims to transform the way the world treats cancer by affecting patients along their treatment pathway and ultimately accelerate cures. Today I have with me Dr. Marcel Guerin to talk about how his research at the CRUK Cambridge Centre led him to co-founding the startup Cited with Rebecca Fitzgerald, Professor of Cancer Prevention and Director of the Early Cancer Institute at the University of Cambridge, and Maria O'Donovan, Lead Pathologist for Upper Gastrointestinal Cancer and Diagnostic Cytology at Cambridge University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. So thanks for joining me today, Marcel. First of all, I would like you to tell me how you started your research career at the CRUK Cambridge Centre and could you briefly outline the focus of your PhD? Of course, Eddie. Thanks for having me today. The first time I actually came to Cambridge was in, in early 2017 and that came about through various coincidences. Previously studied in Germany and worked in my master's on various applications of medical imaging and slowly got into using different types of data science approaches and data analysis approaches on, on medical imaging and started exploring different modalities which those approaches can be applied on. And during that work, I got in touch with Sarah Bondi, who's a professor also here in Cambridge and also works at the CIUK Cambridge Institute. And I came to Cambridge in 2017 to do my master thesis with her, actually. And then at the end of my master thesis, she introduced me to Florian Markovets, who I then did my PhD with. We started talking somewhere halfway through my master thesis. Me and Florian started talking and came to the conclusion of would be a great opportunity to do a PhD with him as well. And he had a number of different data sets and a number of different topics, which he wanted to explore at the time as well. And, and one of those topics um, had a strong overlap with Rebecca Fitzgerald's research as well, which was around early cancer detection, primarily on data, which is generated using Cytosponge. And that sort of played out over a few months, obviously then started a PhD as well um, in early 2018, primarily supervised by Florian and, and Rebecca collaborated um, as an advisor on, on providing the data, giving a lot of clinical context and not spoiling the next question, which we probably will come to at some point in time. That's how I actually started interacting with Rebecca as well and, and how we started uh, debating various ideas, which then led to what happened after my PhD essentially. Yes, yeah, so my next question was a slightly of change of tack, which is, were you involved with research that was part of the Integrated Cancer Medicine Programme during your PhD? I mean, I know that Florian and Rebecca both have knowledge and are involved in this as well. Yes, uh, no, certainly, actually. And I think this was probably one of the most, not that my main PhD project wasn't fun, okay, but there was a big project which was kicked off by Evisala and Mireya. Christian Rotuza is, I think, is still playing or a major role in, in that work as well on using 3D printing for building molds in the first, in our case, first instance, we used it for kidney cancer molds as well in collaboration with some other clinicians and, and scientists in Cambridge. And I think at some point we had this funny situation that I did some 3D printing work in Sarah Bondi's lab for my master thesis. And then um, shortly after that, when I started my PhD and, and started working with Maria as well, who was the postdoc that was, was looking after me um, during my PhD as well. 
we got to discuss this idea, which I think she and Evis and a couple of other people have come up with on using those molds, you know, which Evis has previously been working on at, at MSK when she was in the States on the work which happened in Cambridge uh, for kidney cancer. And then I said, oh, well, we happen to have a 3D printer actually in the, in the Cambridge Institute. And after quite a bit of tinkering and lots of fun work together with Mireya on twisting our brains around geometries of 3D tumors and how they have to be oriented the right way up to be sliced. I got involved in that. And from what I've seen recently, I mean, we obviously have published some of that work as well. And there's, there's more work on this going on right now. It has been extended to ovarian cancer as well. There's, there's something which has been submitted very recently, I think, on that end as well. So, so yeah, definitely was along my PhD, always in touch with what the ICM program is doing and have been an active supporter and, and hopefully through the, the 3D printing work also contributed to to it starting up in that area. Yeah, well, it's funny you should mention it, actually. I'm due to do a podcast episode with the guys who are still working on 3D printing mold, so this ties in very nicely. Oh, <laughs> Great link. Wonderful. Thank you for that. <laughs> I know you're involved in software consultancy from a young age, and do you think that that knowledge combined with your PhD research is what sparked the idea of Cited? Someone asked me a very similar question recently as well, and I think I gave a slightly evasive answer on this, so I will give a slightly less evasive answer on it today. I think what I've done in that software consultancy business was, you know, a reasonably small project with lots of freelancers and contractors, and it operated because a few people got together and did some project work on people that needed web development applications, software development applications for small businesses, essentially. I always tried to compare it in the past to whether that is responsible or whether that plays a role in why we've set up Cited as well. I actually think the answer is more it hasn't played a role than it has played a role, mostly because the nature of the work was fundamentally different. I started a software consultancy very opportunistically in my sort of late teenage years as well. And there was never any, there was never any strategic intent around it as well. I started as a self-taught programmer. There were some friends and families that came to me as well that wanted to have a project done. And I said yes. And then at some point I turned 18 and then I realized, oh, hang on a minute, I could also do this. And I did this for a year full time that I could do this, you know, at a much larger scale just after finishing school. So I did that. And then I realized that there's an asymptotic personal growth journey in that as well, because I could write code at the time. Today, none of the people in the tech team at Cited even let me near any code, which is not a very <laughs> good thing to do. But I think no, because it's just the fundamental approach to how you set up a company in the life sciences and I would say in a very deep scientific or in a deep tech space it's just there's so many more strings attached to that and the complexity is so many orders of magnitude bigger than just you know getting together with a few people and setting up a small business and invoicing people for some work which you're doing mm-hmm. so I don't think there were many lessons learned that were really applicable to, to what happened over the last two two and a half years yeah sure it's a bigger beast entirely <laughs> bigger beast indeed absolutely so my next question is how and when did you get cited off the ground and can you tell me a bit about what the company's main focus is yeah so i came to and i, and I said this i think in a recent interview as well every time i reflect on the time when cited was actually started this was just a year after i stopped all of the software consultancy work as well and when i started my phd i said to myself i'm not going to touch anything entrepreneurial in the next few Yes, because I'm going to focus on my PhD. I did fail somewhat in holding <laughs> that promise. 
particularly if you think about when I started my PhD and when we actually we incorporated the company, it doesn't mean that anything happened. Nothing happened until two years down the road because I was still in the very early days of my PhD. But I started my PhD in April 2018 and the company was incorporated in June 2018 or July 2018. So there wasn't much time in between there. So the, and the company mostly started by, obviously, the data which I was working on originated from Rebecca Fitzgerald's research and obviously started talking to her a lot about the type of data we've been working with, the types of questions from a scientific perspective, which we want to ask and, and then trying to find good answers and, and test these hypotheses. So I just started and I, and I was joking with Rebecca about this very recently as well. I, I think I just started asking a lot of questions. And at some point, I think we both came to the conclusion that there is quite a bit of scope around some of the work which Rebecca has been doing for a long period of time, which is covering the entire spectrum of RPGI early cancer detection from the earliest point of diagnosis over in, in her OCLIPS program around molecular characterization of advanced esophageal cancer. So the entire spectrum of that patient pathway and the disease pathway as well, and how we can make use of that wealth of experience and form a company around it, essentially. So... We got together on that in mid-2018, as I said, was very early in my PhD, and then had, I would say, 18 months time to really think what the company will focus on. And obviously, one of the main poster child, you could almost say, it, of Rebecca's career, and not even poster child, it's, that's not really even fair at it as well. Very seminal piece of work, as well as the entire universe around Cytosponge, which Rebecca conceived some years ago now. And just for the listeners, yes. in case they don't know, just tell us what Cytosponge is. It's a minimally invasive test which uses a capsule that is attached to a thin thread, which is swallowed by patients. The capsule travels into the stomach. After a few minutes in the in the stomach, the capsule dissolves and some foam-like material expands, basically. That is then withdrawn by the attached string after their own seven and a half minutes and collect cells from the top of the stomach and the entire length of the esophagus, the food pipe, essentially. We then ship those cells to a lab, and in the lab we then can analyze these cells for different types of diseases. The the main one we're focusing on is called Barrett's esophagus, which is a well-known precursor for esophageal cancer and usually occurs in patients that suffer from long-term heartburn or reflux symptoms. Very often these patients are on self-medication or on prescribed medication. But that is really what cytosponsor technology mostly does. We're working on some other diseases as well and some other indications to test with the device and with the technology as well. But really and you you touch on it just now as well that that is really the original motivation on what the company was built around as well but also thinking about how can we build a broader ecosystem around that as well which obviously uses cytosponge as a means to an end for cell collection but also what does the biomarker ecosystem on the other side really looks like and how can we evolve that going forward and and this is more relevant now as i think we've spent the first two two and a half years with the company really building out that world around cytosponge is also what else can the company do so you know we've built a very strong and large team with a lot of knowledge around gi diseases and gi cancer as well so why are we not looking at other areas in gi as well which is which is one of the things for example we're doing these days interesting to see how the development has gone what impact did the covid pandemic have on starting a company so you mentioned you started it well it started i guess around the time the covid was beginning to come into the in the uk did it bring opportunities as well as challenges? You're asking a very pertinent question. I can tell you that the first employee started on the 1st of April 2020. <laughs> and we all know what happened probably one or two weeks before that, our first national lockdown. Yeah. We were just about to get some office space in the CI, actually. So in the CI UK Cambridge Institute. And then luckily held back on that. 
a few weeks before that as well because what what was supposed to become a company that is built from the ci outwards basically became a fully remote company right from the beginning and we were that fully remote company i would say until some months down the line i think we started getting more people in in person into what we did as a company i think from october onwards we also acquired a company in 2020 so we ran our own labs and laboratory uh, employees obviously were classified as key workers and it all imposed lots of challenges on us as well but the reason why we actually did acquired that laboratory in the first place as well is the opportunity which covid gave us which happened at the same time obviously and that is mostly that when covid started in the uk there were no endoscopies available anymore like endoscopy capacity was reallocated and diverted onto intensive care units. Everyone who was on a waiting list was on an even longer waiting list very shortly after that. And we got together with NHS Scotland and NHS England and really started thinking about how the test we are offering can actually help to manage these waiting lists and, and to divert demand away from endoscopy waiting lists as well. We didn't really expect that type of adoption and projected that type of adoption very early on, to be frank. So... What happened in 2020 was a very, I mean, it was a curse and a blessing for us as well, because if it was a blessing because the market was standing at our doorstep and wanted to have what we do, that's great. Yeah. And the curse is that is a company that just set up with one and a half employees in a position to do that. And so how many, how many backs do you have to break to get there? Yeah. You were a victim of your own success almost overnight, right? <laughs> Precisely, yeah. precisely. And, and, and there's still remnants around today where we think that, that that saying actually applies, you know, where it's still, okay, just now we actually got the time over the course of this year to really build out some R&D functions in the business as well, to really build some forward-looking functions in the business as well. I mean, not that we haven't done that before, but now we became a fairly large organization quite quickly. So we had to think about how we then reinvent ourselves from you know a commercial operational delivery vehicle back to doing some forward thinking as well and you can almost say dreaming bigger you know what, what we've done with site response is, is just proof point number one it's not the end of the company basically so this this is putting me straight on to my next question which is how has it grown since you started and where are you going with it yeah it's there's three layers of answers to that question i think the first one is just the size of the organization we are in a very weird position to be a post-revenue company as a life sciences startup in our second full full financial year, which is now 2022, essentially, which, again, as I said, comes back to the previous answer, is a curse and a blessing in many ways. But from an organizational size perspective, I mean, in the last, I would say, just over two years now, we went from a, from a one-man band, it was essentially me, who obviously started the company full-time, to think we're around 70 people now. Wow. So quite large we work with another 45 pathologists as well across the country so 70 full-time members of staff and then you know a whole bunch of extra people which are our broader network of people we're working with so a lot of interesting challenges on managing growing organizations through different transition periods and transition points as well is and and very rapid very rapid growth as well Indeed. And we spent the last six months consolidating some of that growth as well. So consolidating in the sense of just not hiring aggressively anymore and just spending a bit of time to enable everyone to arrive at the same point in the company, mentally, you know, just what the life cycle of work looks like in, in, in general. And that has worked really well. And I think the company in general, the temperature is really, really good now. And everyone's very happy about this. We've 
we've built a lot of good structure without creating red tape that really facilitates that. But it also now, and this comes to the last question uh, or the last point of your question as well, it also now has probably enabled us to really, for some time now, to think about, you know, other jurisdictions we are working on, um, other markets we're looking at, other R&D endeavors we're on as well. Obviously, one of the main things is for sort of the core portfolio of tests we're running right now is getting that into other markets than just the UK. UK is a great place to start, but there's other markets out there as well, the US market, some European markets as well which take a lot of our commercial team's focus. And uh, the other one is, as I mentioned earlier, is currently we're one vertical organization that's doing early cancer detection of esophageal cancer and particularly of Barrett's. But the lessons learned of that process basically are amenable to being copied in other areas as well. And actually doing that in a way that we can, we can really efficiently use all of the infrastructure we have built so far to reapply that and to be much quicker than we were with the first so that's also going in the background as well. And as I said, without spilling any beans, like that's in the digestive tract, which is, I think, where our core competence lies. Excellent. And so your product obviously has been used in a clinical setting, has it, to impact patients directly? The cytosponge, I know, has. It has, yeah. It has been used outside the research setting in, in way over 10,000 people so far here in the UK. And that's all real world not in the study, fully part of the clinical routine, basically. Fantastic. And do you see it becoming a standard of care, this test? That's the objective, yeah. 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 I think to, to all of the clinicians out there that you know have an understanding of gastroenterology, probably the answer is a bit more nuanced than that is because it depends on which patient population and groups you're directly referring to. Of course. For some of them, you know, for, for to monitor people with an existing diagnosis of Barrett's, it will also become standard of care at some point in the future as well. But we're, we're still in the process of getting some real-world evidence and evaluating that properly before we can even go near that conclusion. For other areas, just the early detection of Barrett's itself. Sure. I mean, we've shown this in INVEST3, which was a large randomized control trial that was published in The Lancet in 2020, that that works. You know, we, we know that that works. And that's validated in a great way, you know, from a clinical and scientific perspective and and actually also one of the main focuses of what we do at the company right now. But the answer as an umbrella to your question is, of course, yes. Yeah. Of course. And you mentioned it a little bit already, but could it be used globally? Could it be used outside of, obviously, it's already being used outside of Cambridge, but could it be a global test that you can use? Yes. Um, with what we currently do in the Western world, certainly, yes, out of the box. In the Eastern world, where we're looking at a slightly different early stage disease of esophageal cancer that's not called Barrett's esophagus, it's actually called squamous cell dysplasia. There is still biomarker work to be done and going on as well. But yes, certainly yes. As I said, for us, the collection device is, is a means to an end. The holy grail sits on the biomarker ecosystem on the back of it. So what insights can you give to clinicians and to patients indirectly to improve their management or the patient management from a clinical perspective or even lifestyle? You know, if you're diagnosed with Barrett's, that doesn't mean that you need to undergo a surgery. Just changing your diet probably already would be quite helpful, reducing alcohol intake and quite a few other things. So yeah, we're building it out in a way that we can systemically go into additional markets as we go. Excellent. Change of tack here. How do you think the multidisciplinary setting of Cambridge research help you achieve your goals? It's an interesting question because my academic journey prior to starting my PhD was a very extreme definition of interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary in itself. So. I started my PhD as a generalist 
with a decent understanding of computer science from a practical perspective, a good understanding of medical imaging from a practical perspective. And then I suddenly started a PhD working on machine learning and medical imaging from a scientific and academic perspective. So for me, the environment which I was in, and this is a shout out to Florian as well, who has a great view, I think, to accommodate you know, people that have a similar approach to mine in his group as well and let them do what they think is right and, and only challenging when challenge is really necessary, not challenging for the sake of challenging. So in, in that way, you know, the entire CI environment and sort of the wider Cambridge Cancer Center was tremendously helpful. I mean, if you even just reflect on the fact that we did some 3D printing over here and we did some machine learning with digital pathology over here, basically, and somehow it all found its way together. And actually, if I tell the story inside out, you might say that's slightly fragmented but from the outside and if you actually you know listen to the journey in detail it's actually not fragmented at all but it's just overcoming that slightly archaic understanding of that's what science needs to look like you know a phd is not about going to the basement for four years and and characterizing a single cell line and and its interaction in certain co-cultures or something like that sure that can still happen today but yeah Certain PIs just can instill that motivation in people as well and can facilitate that as well, that they interact with other groups, that they interact with projects which are just on the fringe of what they might be doing as well, but, but because they see the long-term perspective on how much it helps the individuals as well. And if you want to set up a company after your PhD, which I do not recommend to everyone, it, that's a whole journey in itself, which is very draining for many different reasons and not as glorious as it always looks from the outside, because there's a personal journey behind that as well, which comes with time investment and energy investment and everything around that. But it's making sure that people are equipped for these types of paths as well. And not that they're just equipped to do a postdoc. Yeah, and say for sure. Nothing against that. There's a scientific rationale and there's a good reason why you should do that path as well. But equally, it shouldn't bias against other paths which are out there. Yeah, no, it's just good to have all the options open, isn't it? I think Cambridge is quite a unique place where everyone can come together in one big melting pot and ideas can form and develop and and flourish yeah it did absolutely so i was going to ask you which is funny you just mentioned you wouldn't advise everybody to start a company um but what advice would you give to somebody else who has an idea for a startup in the medical sector i'm going to start the boring way and i say patience and let's just counterintuitive to everything you would think is entrepreneurial actually Impatience is probably one of the most important traits of someone wanting to set up a company. At the same time, patience is equally one. But it's just also understanding where to pick your battles on being impatient and or patient, essentially. Healthcare is a slow space. It's not like building an app and then making all of your friends and family download that app and they use it tomorrow. There's regulatory hurdles. There's commercial hurdles in itself, like who's paying for what you do as well. There's scientific hurdles. You have to convince clinicians that what you do is a good thing and, and you have data to support that statement. The main main recommendation I have is never to do it alone. And alone might even mean, you know, even, you know, Rebecca and Maria, they both stayed in their full-time capacity as academics and clinicians, essentially. But it's trying to make sure that before people take the lead, they already focus on making sure that there is a support network that can be mentors, that can be advisors, that, that, that they don't even need to be employees of companies or just fellow co-founders or something like that. If that's the case, sure, that's even better because then they go through the same experience and they and they live through the same ups and downs. But I think not doing it on your own is a very important one because I think there are certain sectors where starting a company on your own is easier. I don't say it's easy, but it's easier. 
but in something which is, and this comes back to your previous point or previous question as well on, you know, multidisciplinary dependency almost to some extent. I now, maybe because I had some background in the software consultancy before, but I now had an incredible learning curve on corporate law, on business management. And they were all self-taught and just picked up as we, as we went along over the last two and a half years because I didn't have a choice. Would it have been easier to have someone on board who would have helped with that? Probably the answer to that is yes, but you don't always have the choice to do that. But I think next time, and I'm sure there will be a next time I'm going to do it. Uh, this is not going to be the last thing in that space I, I'm going to do. I would make sure that the starting parameters, which I can control are ideal because now I know what starting parameters exist and I know how certain starting parameters don't take effect until two years into the journey, basically. But I now know what the screws are, you know, like even if it's just a term in a legal document that can come back at you two years later, which did really fast. But there are things where you just can make your life much easier from the beginning. And one of them is not doing it alone because then all of the weight is on you. Yeah, of course. More shoulders is better. So. Yeah, makes sense. But do you have any other collaborations with Cambridge researchers in the pipeline? Any that you can tell me about? <laughs> yes, there are, there are some in the pipeline. We know the Cambridge ecosystem very well. We know where there's core competences across that ecosystem as well. We do have links, very strong links to Rebecca's research and Rebecca as well. And there's quite a bit of work going on. We're talking to other people in the Cambridge cluster and universe as well, both on the commercial and industrial and on the academic side as well. But yeah, it's interesting because every time we, we come to a point where we think about, should we look further beyond the system for something like that as well? Usually you come across that one person in Cambridge that is already one of the leading people in that space. And then you either know them already, you know, on the first name basis, because that's just being in the ecosystem for a few years now, or you are one handshake away from them. So yes, it's the answer to that question. It's a great network to be in, sure. So where do you see you and your company going in the next five to 10 years? 10 years, I can't give you an answer. I can't, can't give you an answer for that. Uh, 10 years is is global world domination in the GI diagnostic space. And, and I'm fairly confident that we can get there within 10 years. I think I'm more driving that ambition to be five years as well. And I think we have some really exciting stuff in the pipeline over the next few years as well, which might get us closer to that as well. At least being one of the leading companies. I wouldn't say the leading company. That's just going to come in year six. And it's not going to be in year five immediately. <laughs> we have to give ourselves a bit of time for that. Yeah, you need um, ambition. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think personally supporting the company in in the role I am in right now for as long as I'm the best person to do that job. And some people always say this this is, you know, make, make this like a weird thing if people talk about this. I don't think it is weird at all. So far, it has been great. And I think I'm the right person for the role which I'm in. Whether it's the same case in seven years, who knows? You know, if we would be two and a half thousand employees and it's pretty much like running a corporate organization. There's people who can do that very well. And, and that might not necessarily be my interest to manage red tape on a daily basis, you know, and, and it's just a very different job. So as long as my interdisciplinary background and understanding of what we do drives the company forward at 160 miles an hour, I'm going to do it. I would even do it at 130 miles an hour and probably at 50 miles an hour as well. I think it's making sure that we become the thing I just in a jokey way started my answer with is really taking over the GI diagnostics market in storm and making sure that with all of the competence we, we are able to tap into from the founding team and, and what we've built over the last two and a half years is really applied going forward as well. And we can 
we can demonstrate that we can't only change standard of care for people living with heartburn and reflux, but you know, also go into other areas in the GI tract where there are large unmet clinical needs as well that are open for disruption, either already going on or waiting for someone to come in who knows how to do it. My last question is, where do you see integrated cancer medicine taking us in the next five to 10 years? What's your take on that? Yeah, it's quite interesting. The first time I heard that acronym a few years ago, I tried to, you know, the first time you hear something when you haven't been in touch with something, and I haven't had an explanation at the time where I first heard at the acronym ICM. Your thought always goes to current scientific trends that you can align with that word. So integration, you know, multimodality integration and, you know, combining CT images with whole genome sequencing or something like that. I think actually what we've done, and this is not to blow our own trumpet, or that I think that's a spectacularly good project, which I obviously think it is. <laughs> I think it's less about following trends and rather than thinking about really neat approaches to challenges or problems with very broad background of team and very different backgrounds of teams as well. And, you know, you can solve, and, and we, we tried some of these things as well, let's see, I do my PhD as well, but people would be surprised what types of problems in research you can, you can solve with 3D printing. From embedding the frozen biopsies over many other challenges you can actually work on as well. For me, integrated cancer medicine obviously starts very clinically motivated. You know, it starts where we understand clinical needs the best. And I think most research, what we do at the interface should be clinically led because otherwise you have this massive risk of working on something which has no clinical impact whatsoever on the road. But it's also making sure that the, the culture of tolerance around being very left-fieldish about how you address those problems. And left-fieldish means not necessarily always what the trend is right now, but also just thinking maybe that trend is a bad idea. And and also, you know, and this, this lies within what we do in industry now as well and in the scale-up world is where to encourage people to take risks and how do you build a better approach to, to, to risk as well. Because with such a program in existence as well, and with that overall field in existence as well, it's one of the few fields which has the burden of always looking forward as well. You know, it doesn't look that much at what happens in the status quo right now. It tries to anticipate what's going to be relevant in two, five, 10 years or something like that, and then take a few bets on that. And I think taking bets in general is a good idea because you, you just need to take enough educated bets and then that's going to work. Yeah, that's a really interesting take on it. So that's the end of my question. So I'd like to thank you very much for taking your time out of your day to have this conversation with me this afternoon. Thank you very much, Marcel. Thank you, Ellie. Bye. If you want to find out more about the work of the Mark Foundation Institute for Integrated Cancer Medicine, please visit our website at www.integratedcancermedicine.org where you can find details of the ICM vision, all the current research, clinical trials, resources, publications, and team information. You can keep up to date with our latest news and events, and you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you would like more information about the work of the CRUK Cambridge Centre, please go to www.crukcambridgecentre.org.uk, or you can connect with us on Twitter using our handle at CRUKCAMCentre. Thanks for listening and do join us again soon.